commissioned my good friend Roger to compile a book, a thesaurus of bon mots for every occasion, affectionate billet doux, epistolary gossip, witty pen portraitures, political dispatches argued with persuasion and cunning. Franklin describes everybody alike as being so amiable and agreeable that I cannot tell one from the other. Despite my exhortations to seek out the faults and not the virtues only. There, I allow my thoughts to run as if he were here for me to scold. Dear, kind, benevolent husband who would not harm an ant that had ventured across the tablecloth on a lone expedition from the jam dish to the sugar bowl. Dr. Hans now hovers by the doorway. There is a rustle of muslin and lace and a diminutive young woman teeters into the room, perfectly formed like a doll, a froth of golden curls piled high on her head, painted lips accentuated into a cupid bow, a hint of rouge highlighting the cheekbones, and the most striking sapphire-blue eyes which linger unblinking on mine. She cannot be more than a child, and I clasp my hands tight, in thrall, and with a sense of being duped at the same time. I would be a fool not to expect trickery. Would love to fathom how in the end it is done. Yet I am eager as a child at a pantomime. I long to be astonished. A dangerous state of mind, I know, but I am restless and tired of waiting and listening to people who can tell me nothing of my husband's expedition, indeed do nothing except send one another self-congratulatory missives. I can hear them now, those fine gentlemen striding the assembly rooms of Admiralty House. From Sir John Barrow, Second Secretary Former experience has clearly shown that with the resources taken from this country— Two winters may be passed in the polar regions, not only in safety, but with comfort. The anxiety that prevails regarding Sir John Franklin and the brave fellows who compose the crews of the two ships is very natural but somewhat premature. It arises chiefly from nothing having been received from them since fixed in the ice of Baffin Bay, where the last whaling ship of the season of 1845 left them opposite the opening to Lancaster Sound, and so on. Now almost three years have slipped by since the Erebus and the Terror were last seen one month into their voyage, tacking close to a berg, before they vanished into dense fog, and since then no news, not a word. Despite my pleas and petitions, only the Enterprise and the Investigator, commanded by Captain James Ross and Sir John Richardson, have been dispatched northwest in search of my husband's expedition. Instead, I must wait for returning whalers, whose wild narratives cannot be trusted at all. Have faith, the polar veterans exhort. No other mission has been so meticulously fitted out, so refined with England's latest inventions. Why, the Erebus and the Terror are virtually indestructible, have been strengthened to Herculean proportions, each externally sheathed with copper and stout planking, internally fortified with strong cross and longitudinal beams of Canadian elm, African oak, with iron stanchions and diagonal fastenings.
Impervious to ice and independent of wind, I am told, the ships can move at will without sail, powered as they are by steam locomotives. Brass, twin-bladed, retractable propellers engineered by the London and Greenwich Railway. And to reassure me further, they elaborate on the ship's heating systems, tubular boilers pumping steam from wardrooms to cabins. For the officer's entertainment, a library comprising 17,000 volumes, including the complete works of Shakespeare, the latest novels from Thackeray and Dickens, geographical magazines, and bound copies of Punch. As for the stores, preserved tinned provisions, the very best purveyed by Goldner's Meat Factory, enough to last five or six years at the most. No need to worry, my dear. No cause for alarm.